Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Chapter 8, The Wedding. Three o'clock on the following afternoon found Harry, Ron, Fred, and George standing outside the great white marquee in the orchard, awaiting the arrival of the wedding guests. Harry had taken a large dose of polyjuice potion and was now the double of a red-headed muggle boy from the local village, Ottery St. Catchpole, from whom Fred had stolen hairs using a summoning charm. The plan was to introduce Harry as Cousin Barney and to trust the great number of Weasley relatives to camouflage him. All four of them were clutching seating plans so that they could help show people to the right seats. A host of white-robed waiters had arrived an hour earlier, along with a golden-jacketed hand, golden-jacketed band, and all these wizards were currently sitting a short distance away under a tree. Harry could see a blue haze of pipe smoke issuing from the spot. Behind Harry, the entrance to the marquee revealed rows and rows of fragile golden chairs set either side of a long purple carpet. The supporting poles were entwined with white and gold flowers. Fred and George had fastened an enormous bunch of golden balloons over the exact point where Bill and Flora would shortly become husband and wife. Outside, butterflies and bees were hovering lazily over the grass and hedgerow. Harry was rather uncomfortable. The mogul boy, whose appearance he was affecting, was slightly fatter than him, and his dress robes felt hot and tight in the full glare of a summer's day. When I get married, said Fred, tugging at the collar of his own rose, I won't be bothering with any of this nonsense. You can all wear what you like, and I'll put a full, bo- full body bind curse on Mum till she's over. She wasn't too bad this morning, considering, said George. Cried a bit about Percy not being here, but who wants him? Oh, blimey, brace yourselves. Here they come, look. Brightly colored figures were appearing one by one, out of nowhere at the distant boundary of the yard. Within minutes, a procession had formed, which began to snake its way up through the garden towards the marquee. Exotic flowers and bewitched birds fluttered on the witches' hats, while precious gems glittered from many of the wizard's cravats. A hum of excited chatter grew louder and louder, drowning the sound of the bees as the crowd approached the tent. Excellent. I think I see a few Vila cousins, said George, craning his neck for a better look. They'll need help understanding our English customs. I'll look after them. Not so fast, Lugless, said Fred, and darting past the gaggle of middle-aged witches heading towards the procession, he said, Here, permisez-moi du assistoir, to a pair of pretty French girls, who giggled and allowed them to escort them inside. George was left to deal with the middle-aged witches, and Ron took charge of Mr. Weasley's old ministry colleague, Perkins, while a rather deaf old couple fell to Harry's lot. Watcher! said a familiar voice as he came out of the marquee again and found Tonks and Lupin at the front of the queue. She had turned blonde for the occasion. Arthur told us you were the one with the curly hair. Sorry about last night, she added with a whisper as Harry led them up the aisle. The ministry's been very empty werewolf at the moment, and we thought our presence might not do any favors. It's fine, I understand, said Harry, speaking more to Lupin than Tonks. Lupin gave him a swift smile, but as they turned away, Harry saw Lupin's face fall again into lines of misery. He did not understand it, but there was no time to dwell on the matter. Hagrid was causing a certain amount of disruption. (laughs) Having misunderstood Fred's directions, he had sat himself, not upon the magically enlarged and reinforced seat set aside for him in the back row, but on the five seats that now resembled a large pile of golden matchsticks. (laughs) While Mr. Weasley repaired the damage and Hagrid shouted apologies to anybody who would listen, Harry hurried back to the entrance to find Ron face-to-face with a most eccentric-looking wizard. Slightly cross-eyed, with shoulder-length white hair of the texture of candy floss, 
He wore a cap whose tassel dangled in front of his nose and robes of eye-watering shade of egg-yolk yellow. An odd symbol, rather like a triangular eye, glistened from a golden chain around his neck. Ah, Xenophilius Lovegood, he said, extending a hand to Harry. My daughter and I live just over the hill. So kind of the good Weasleys to invite us. I think you know my Luna, he added to Ron. Yeah, said Ron. Isn't she with you? She lingered in that charming little garden to say hello to the gnomes. Such a glorious infestation. How few wizards realize that how much we can learn from the wise little gnomes. Or to give them their correct name, the Genumbli Godinensi. Pfft, do know a lot of excellent swear words, said Ron. But I think Fred and George taught us those. He led a party of warlocks up into the marquee as Luna rushed up. Hello, Harry, she said. Um, my name's Bonnie, said Harry, flummoxed. Oh, have you changed that too? She asked brightly. Um, how did you know? Oh, just your expression, she said. Like her father, Luna was wearing bright yellow robes, which she had sexorized with a large yellow sunflower in her hair. Once you got over the brightness of it all, the general effect was quite pleasant. At least there were no radishes dangling from her ears. Xenophilius, who was deep in conversation with an acquaintance, had missed the exchange between Luna and Harry. Bidding the wizard farewell, he turned to his daughter, who held up her finger and said, Daddy, look, one of the gnomes actually bit me. Ah, how wonderful. Gnome saliva is enormously beneficial, said Mr. Lovegood, seizing Luna's outstretched finger and examining the bleeding puncture marks. Luna, my love, if you should feel any burgeoning talent today, perhaps an unexpected urge to sing opera or declaim and murmish, do not repress it. You may have been gifted by the Genumblis. Ron, passing them in the opposite direction, let out a loud snort. Ron can laugh, said Luna serenely, as Harry led her and Xenophilius towards their seats. But my father has done great research on the Jernumbly magic. Really? said Harry, who had long since decided not to challenge Luna or her father's peculiar views. We're sure you don't want to put anything on that bite, though. Oh, it's fine, said Luna, sucking her finger in a dreamy fashion and looking Harry up and down. You look smart. I told Daddy most people would probably wear dress robes, but he believes you ought to wear sun colors to a wedding. For luck, you know. After she drifted off after her father, Ron reappeared with an elderly witch clutching his arm. Her beaky nose, red-rimmed eyes, and feathery pink hat gave her the look of a bad-tempered flamingo. And your hair is much too long, Ronald. For a moment, I thought you were Geneva. Merlin's beard, what is Xenophilia's love good wearing? He looks like an omelette. And who are you? She barked at Harry. Oh, yeah, um, Auntie Muro, this is our cousin... Oh, sorry, wrong words. This is going to be a tough one. Oh, yeah, Auntie Muro, this is our cousin, Barney. Another Weasley? You breed like gnomes. Isn't Harry Potter here? I was hoping to meet him. I thought he was a friend of yours, Ronald, or have you been merely been boasting? Um, no, he couldn't come. Hmm, made an excuse, did he? Not as normless as he looks in press photographs thin. I've just been instructing the bride on how to best wear my tiara, she shouted at Harry. Goblin maid, you know. Been in my family for centuries. She's a good-looking girl, but still. French? Well, well, find me a good seat, Ronald. I am a hundred and seven, and I ought not to be on my feet too long. Ron gave Harry a meaningful look as he passed and did not reappear for some time. When next they met at the entrance, Harry had been shown a dozen more people to their places. The marquee was nearly full now, and for the first time, there was no queue outside. Nightmare Muriel is, 
said Ron, mopping his forehead on his sleeve. She used to come for Christmas every year then. Thank God she took offence because Fred and George set off a dung bomb under a chair at dinner. Dad always said she'll have written them out in a will. Like they care. They're going to end up richer than anyone in the family. The right they're going. Wow, he added, blinking toward rather blinking rather rapidly at her, as Hermione came hurrying towards them. You look great. Always the tone of surprise, said Hermione, though she smiled. She was wearing a floaty, lilac-colored dress with matching high heels. Her hair was sleek and shiny. Your great-aunt Muriel doesn't agree. I just met her upstairs while she was giving Floor the tiara. She said, oh dear, is this the muggle-born? And then, bad posture and skinny ankles. Now don't take it personally, she's rude to everyone, said Ron. Talking about Muriel, inquired George, re-emerging from the marquee with Fred. Yeah, she just told me my ears are lopsided. Oh, bat. I wish old Billius was still with us, though. He was a right laugh at weddings. Wasn't he the one who saw Grimm and died 24 hours later? Asked Hermione. Yeah, well, he went a bit odd at the end, conceded George. Ah, but before he went loopy, he was the life and soul of the party, said Fred. He used to down an entire bottle of fire whiskey, then run on the dance floor, hoist up his robes, and stop pulling bunches of flowers out of his... Yes, he sounds like a real charmer, said Hermione, while Harry roared with laughter. Never married for some reason, said Ron. <sighs> you amaze me, said Hermione. They were all laughing so much that none of them noticed the latecomer. A dark-haired young man with a large, curved nose and thick black eyebrows until he had held up his invitation to Ron and said with his eyes on Hermione, You look wonderful. Victor! she shrieked and dropped her small beaded bag, which made a loud thump quite disproportionate to its size. As she scrambled, blushing, to pick it up, she said, I didn't know that you were... Oh, goodness, it's lovely to see... How are you? Ron's ears had turned bright red again. After glancing at Crumb's invitation as he didn't believe a word of it, he said much too loudly, "'How come you're here?' "'Um, Fleur invited me,' said Crumb, eyebrows raised. Harry, who had no grudge against Crumb, shook hands. Then, feeling it would be prudent to remove Crumb from Ron's vicinity, offered to show him to his seat. "'Your friend is not pleased to see me,' said Crumb, as they entered the now-packed marquee. "'Or is he a relative?' he added, with a glance at Harry's red curly hair. Um, cousin, Harry muttered, but Crumb wasn't really listening. His appearance was causing a stir, particularly amongst the Vila cousins. He was, after all, a famous Quidditch player. While people were still craning their necks to get a good look at him, Ron, Hermione, Fred, and George came hurrying down the aisle. Time to sit down, Fred told Harry, or we're going to get run over by the bride. Harry, Ron, and Hermione took their seats in the second row behind Fred and George. Hermione looked rather pink, and Ron's ears were still scarlet. After a few moments, he muttered to Harry, Do you say he's grown a stupid little beard? Harry gave a noncommittal grunt. A sense of jittery anticipation had filled the warm tent, a general murmuring broken by the occasional spurts of excited laughter. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley strolled up the aisle, smiling and waving at relatives. Mr. Weasley was wearing a brand new set of amethyst-colored robes with a matching hat. A moment later, Bill and Charlie stood up at the front of the marquee, both wearing dress robes with large white roses in their buttonholes. Fred Wolf whistled, and there was an outbreak of giggling from the Vila cousins. Then the crowd fell silent as the music swelled from what seemed to be the golden balloons. Ooh, said Hermione, swiveling around in her seat to look at the entrance. A great collective sigh issued from the assembled witches and wizards as Monsieur de la Cure and Fleur came walking up the aisle, Fleur gliding, Monsieur de la Cure bouncing and beaming. 
Flora was wearing a very simple white dress and seemed to be emitting a strong silvery glow. While her radiance usually dimmed everyone else by comparison, today it beautified everybody it fell upon. Jenny and Gabrielle, both wearing golden dresses, looked even prettier than usual, and once Flora had reached him, Bill did not look as though he had ever met Fenrir Greyback. Uh, I'm trying to figure out whose voice this is next. I have no idea. Ladies and gentlemen, with said a slightly sing-song voice, and with a slight shock, Harry saw the same small tufted hair wizard who had presided at Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's funeral, now standing in front of Bill and Fleur. We are gathered here today to celebrate the union of two faithful souls. Yeah, my tiara sets off the whole thing nicely, said Auntie Muriel in a rather carrying whisper. But I must say, Ginevra's dress is far too low cut. Jenny glanced around, grinning, winking at Harry, then quickly faced the front again. Harry's mind wandered a long way from the marquee, back to afternoons spent alone with Jenny in lonely parts of the school grounds. They seemed so long ago. They'd always seemed too good to be true, as though he'd been stealing shining hours from a normal person's life, a person without a lightning-shaped scar on his forehead. Do you, William Arthur, take floor Isabel? In the front row, Mrs. Weasley and Madame Delacour were both sobbing quietly into scraps of lace. Trumpet-like sounds from the back of the marquee told everyone that Hagrid had taken out one of his own tablecloth-sized handkerchiefs. <laughs> Hermione turned and beamed at Harry. Her eyes, too, were full of tears. Then I declare you bonded for life. The tufty-haired wizard raised his wand high over the heads of Bill and Fleur, and a shower of silver stars fell upon them, spiraling around their now-entwined figures. As Fred and George led a round of applause, the golden balloons overhead burst. Birds of paradise and tiny golden bells flew and floated out of them, adding their songs and chimes to the din. Ladies and gentlemen, called the tufted-haired wizard, if you would, please stand up. They all did so, Auntie Muriel grumbling audibly. He waved his wand. The seats on which they had been sitting rose gracefully into the air as the canvas walls of the marquee vanished, so that they stood beneath a canopy supported by golden poles with a glorious view of the sunlit orchard and the surrounding countryside. Next, a pool of molten gold spread from the center of the tent to form a gleaming dance floor. The hovering chairs grouped themselves around small white cloth tables, which all floated gracefully back to the earth around it, and the golden-jacketed band trooped toward a podium. Smooth, said Ron approvingly, as the waiters popped up on all sides, some bearing silver chays of pumpkin juice, butter beer, and fire whiskey, others tottering piles of tarts and sandwiches. We should go and congratulate them, said Hermione, standing on tiptoe to see the place where Bill and Flora had vanished among a crowd of well-wishers. We'll have time for that later, shrugged Ron, snatching three butterbeers from a passing tray and handing one to Harry. Hermione, cup hold, let's grab a table. Not there. Nowhere near Muriel. Ron led the way across the empty dance floor, glancing left and right as he went. Harry felt sure he was keeping an eye out for Crumb. By the time they reached the other side of the marquee, most of the tables were occupied. The emptiest was the one where Luna sat alone. All right, if we join you, asked Ron. Oh, yes, she said happily. Daddy's just gone to, trick to give Bill and Fleur a present. What is it, a, like, a lifetime supply of Gertie roots? asked Ron. Hermione aimed a kick at him under the table, but caught Harry instead. Eyes watering in pain, Harry lost track of the conversation for a few moments. The band had begun to play. 
Bill and Flora took to the dance floor first to great applause. After a while, Mr. Weasley led Madame Delacour to the floor, followed by Mrs. Weasley and Flora's father. I like this song, said Luna, swaying in time to the waltz-like tune, and for a few seconds later, she stood up and glided onto the dance floor where she revolved on the spot, quite alone, eyes closed, and waving her arms. Yeah, she's great, isn't she? said Ron admiringly. Always good value. But the smile vanished from his face at once. Victor Crumb had dropped into Luna's vacant seat. Hermione looked pleasurably flustered, but this time Crumb had not come to compliment her. With a scowl on his face, he said, Who is that man in the yellow? Oh, that's Zena Felix Lovegood. He's the father of a friend of ours, said Ron. His pugnacious tone indicated that they were not about to laugh at Xenophilius, despite the clear provocation. Come and dance, he said abruptly to Hermione. She looked taken aback, but pleased too, and got up. They vanished together into the growing throng on the dance floor. Are they together now? asked Crumb, momentarily distracted. Um, sort of, said Harry. And who are you? Crumb asked. Um, Barney Weasley. They shook hands. You, Barney, you know this love man love good well? Um, no, I only met him today. Why? Clum glowered over the top of his drink, watching Xenophilius, who was chatting to several warlocks on the other side of the dance floor. Because, said Clum, if he was not in the of floors, I would duel him, here now, for wearing that filthy sign upon his chest. Sign? said Harry, looking over at Xenophilius too. The strange triangular eye was gleaming on his chest. Why, what... What's wrong with it? Grindelwald. That's Grindelwald's sign. Grindelwald? The dark wizard that Dumbledore defeated. Exactly. Crumb's jaw muscles worked as if he were chewing. Then he said, Grindelwald killed many people. My father, for instance. Of course, he was never powerful in this country. They said he feared Dumbledore, and rightly, seeing as he was finished. But this... He pointed a finger at Xenophilius. This is his symbol. I recognize it at once. Grindelwald carded into a vault at Durmstrang when he was a pupil there. Some idiots copied it onto their books and clothes, thinking it to shock, make themselves impressive. To those of us who had lost family members to Grindelwald taught them better. Crumb cracked his knuckles menacingly and glowered at Xenophilius. Harry felt perplexed. It seemed incredibly unlikely that Luna's father was a supporter of the Dark Arts, and nobody else in the tent seemed to have recognized the triangular rune-like shape. Um, are you, are you quite sure that it's Grindelwald's? I am not mistaken," said Crumb coldly. "I've walked past that sign for several years. I know it well." Well, there's a chance," said Harry, "that Zinnfields doesn't actually know what the symbol means. Lovegoods are quite unusual. He could have picked it up somewhere, and I think it's a cross section of the head of a crumplehorn snowcack or something like that. A cross section of a vault. Well, I don't know what they are, but apparently he and his daughter go on holiday looking for them. Harry felt he was doing a bad job explaining Luna and her father. That's her, he said, pointing at Luna, who was still dancing alone, waving her arms around her head like someone attempting to beat off midges. Why is she doing that? asked Crumb. I'm probably trying to get rid of a rack spurt, said Harry, who recognized the symptoms. Crumb did not seem to know whether Harry or not was Harry or not Harry, whether or not Harry was making fun of him. He drew his wand from inside his robe and tapped it menacingly on his thigh. Sparks flew out the end. Grigorovich, said Harry loudly, and Crumb started, but Harry was too excited to care. 
The memory had come back to him at the sight of Crumb's wand, Ollivander taking it and examining it carefully before the tri tournament. What about him? asked Crumb suspiciously. He's a wand maker. I know that, said Crumb. He made your wand. That's why I thought Quidditch. Crumb was looking more and more suspicious. How do you know Prigorovich has made my wand? I I read it somewhere, I think, said Harry, in a, in a fan magazine. He improvised wildly and Crumb looked mollified. I had not realized they ever discussed my wand with fans, he said. So, um, where is Prokhorovich these days? Crumb looked puzzled. He retired years ago. I was one of the last to purchase a Grigorovich wand. They are the best. Although I know, of course, that you Britons set much store by Ollivander. Harry did not answer. He pretended to watch the dancers like Crumb, but he was thinking hard. So, Voldemort was looking for a celebrated wandmaker, and Harry did not have to search far for a reason. He was sure because of what Harry's wand had done on that night that Voldemort had pursued him across the skies. The Holly and Phoenix Feather Wand had conquered the Borrowed Wand, something that Ollivander had not anticipated or understood. Would Grigorovich know better? Was he truly more skilled than Ollivander? Did he know secrets of wands that Ollivander did not? This girl, he's very nice looking, Crumb said, recalling Harry to his surroundings. Crumb was pointing at Jenny, who had just joined Luna. She is a relative of yours? Yeah, said Harry, suddenly irritated. And she's seeing someone, jealous type, big bloke, you wouldn't want to cross him. Crumb, gr- Crumb grunted. What, he said, draining his goblet and getting to his feet again. Is the point of being an international Quidditch player if all of the good-looking girls are taken? And he strode off, leading Harry to take a sandwich from a passing waiter and make his way around the edge of a crowded dance floor. He wanted to find Ron to tell him about Grigorovich, but Ron was dancing with Hermione out in the middle of the floor. Harry leaned up against one of the golden pillars and watched Jenny, who was now dancing with Fred and George's friend Lee Jordan, trying not to feel resentful about the promise he had given Ron. He had never been to a wedding before, so he couldn't judge how wizarding celebrations differed from muggle ones, though he was pretty sure that the latter would not involve a wedding cake topped with two model phoenixes that took flight when the cake was cut, or bottles of champagne that floated unsupported through the crowd. As evening drew in and the moss began to swoop under the canopy, now lit with golden fl- gold, floating golden lanterns, the revelry became more and more uncontained. Fred and George had long since disappeared into the darkness with a pair of Fleur's cousins. Charlie, Hagrid, and the squat wizard in a purple pork pie hat were singing Odo the Hero in a corner. Wandering through the crowd so as to escape a drunken uncle of Ron's who seemed unsure whether, whether or not Harry was his son, Harry spotted an old wizard sitting alone at a table. His cloud of white hair made him look rather like an aged dandelion clock and was topped by a moth-eaten fez. He was vaguely familiar. Racking his brains, Harry suddenly realized that this was Elphias Doge, member of the Order of the Phoenix and the writer of Dumbledore's obituary. Harry approached him. May I sit down? Of course, of course, said Doge. He had a rather high-pitched, wheezy voice. Harry leaned in. Mr. Doge, I'm Harry Potter. Doge gasped. My dear boy, Arthur told me you were here disguised. I'm so glad, I'm so honored. In a flutter of nervous pleasure, Doge poured Harry a goblet of champagne. I thought about writing to you, he whispered, after Dumbledore. Ah, the shock, and for you, I am sure. Doge's tiny eyes filled with sudden tears. I saw the obituary you wrote for the Daily Prophet, said Harry. 
I didn't realise that you knew Professor Dumbledore so well. As, as well as anyone, said Doge, dabbing his eyes with a napkin. Certainly, I knew him the longest, if you don't count Aberforth. And somehow, people never do seem to count Aberforth. Speaking of the Daily Prophet, I don't know whether you saw Mr. Doge. Oh, please call me a Firester boy. Fias, I don't know whether you saw the interview Rita Skeeter gave about Dumbledore. Doge's face flooded with angry, angry color. Oh, yes, Harry, I saw it. That woman, that vulture might be a more accurate term, positively pestered me to talk to her. I'm ashamed to say that I became rather rude, rather calling her an interfering trout, which resulted, as you may have seen, in aspersions cast upon my sanity. Well, in that interview, Harry went on, Rita Skeeter hinted that Professor Dumbledore was involved in the dark arts when he was young. Don't believe a word of it, said Doge at once. Not a word, Harry. Let nothing tarnish your memories of Albus Dumbledore. Harry looked into Doge's earnest, pained face and felt not reassured, but frustrated. Did Doge really think that it was that easy? That Harry could simply choose not to believe? Didn't Doge understand Harry's need to be sure? To know everything? Perhaps Doge suspected Harry's feelings, for he looked concerned and hurried on. Harry, Rita Skeeter is a dreadful... But he was interrupted by a shrill cackle. Rita Skeeter, oh, I love her, always Rita. Harry and Doge looked up to see Auntie Muriel standing there, the plumes dancing on her hat, a goblet of champagne in her hand. She's written a book about Dumbledore, you know. Hello, Muriel, said Doge. Yes, we were just discussing... You that! Give me your chair. I'm 107! Another red-headed Weasley cousin jumped off his seat, looking alarmed, and Auntie Muriel swung it around with surprising strength and plopped herself down upon it between Doge and Harry. Hmm... Hello again, Barry, whatever your name is, she said to Harry. Now, what were you saying about Rita Skeeter, Fires? You know she's written a biography of Dumbledore. I can't wait to read it. I must remember to place an order at Flourish and Bots. Doge looked stiff and solemn at this, but Auntie Muriel drained her goblet and clicked her bony fingers at a passing waiter for a replacement. She took another large gulp of champagne, belched, and then said, There's no need to look like a pair of stuffed frogs. Before he came so respected and respectable at all that tosh, there were some mighty funny rumors about Albus. Ill-informed sniping, said Doge, turning radish-colored again. You would say that, Ophias, cackled, cackled Auntie Muriel. I noticed how you skated over the sticky patches in that obituary of yours. I'm sorry you think so, said Doge, more coldly still. I assure you, I was writing from the heart. Oh, we all know you worship Dumbledore. I dare say you'll still think he was a saint, even if he does turn out that he did away with his squib, Mr. Muriel, exclaimed Doge. A chill that had nothing to do with the ice champagne was stealing through Harry's chest. What do you mean? he asked Muriel. Who said his sister was a squib? I thought she was ill. I thought wrong then, didn't you, Barry? said Auntie Muriel, looking delighted at the effect that she had produced. Anyway, how could you expect to know anything about it? It all happened years and years before you even thought of, my dear, and the truth is that those of us who were alive then never knew really what happened. So I can't wait to find out what Skeeter's on earth. Dumbledore kept that sister of his quiet for a long time. Untrue, wheezed Doge. Absolutely untrue. He never told me his sister was a squib, said Harry, without thinking, still cold inside. And why on earth would he tell you? Screeched Muriel, swaying a little in her seat as she attempted to focus upon Harry. The reason Albus never spoke about Ariana, began Ephias, in a voice stiff with emotion, is 
I should have thought quite clear. He was so devastated by her death. Why did nobody ever see her, Fias? squawked Muriel. Why did half of us never know she existed until they carried the coffin out of the house, held a funeral for her? Where was saintly Albus while Ariana was locked in the cellar, off being brilliant at Hogwarts, never mind what was going on in his own house? What do you mean, locked in the cellar? asked Harry. What is this? Doge looked wretched. Auntie Muriel cackled again and answered Harry. She never pretended anything of the sort. Kendra was a fine woman. Proud and very domineering, the sort of which she had been mortified to produce a squib. Ariana was not a squib, wheezed Doge. So you say, Ophias, but explain then why she never attended Hogwarts, said Auntie Muriel. She turned back to Harry. In our day, squibs were often hushed up, though to take it to the extreme of actually imprisoning a little girl in the house and pretending she didn't exist. I must tell you, that's not what happened, said Doge. But Auntie Muriel steamrolled on, still addressing Harry. Squibs were usually shipped off to muggle schools and encouraged to integrate into the muggle community, much kinder than trying to find them a place in the wizarding world where they must always be second class. But naturally, Kendra Dumbledore wouldn't have dreamed of letting her daughter go to a muggle school. Ariana was delicate, said Doge desperately. Her health was always too poor to permit her to, permit her to leave the house, cackled Muriel. And yet she was never taken to St. Mungo's. No healer was ever summoned to see her. Really, Muriel, how can you possibly know whether... For your information, Elphias, my cousin Lancelot was a keeler at St. Mungo's at the time, and he told my family in strictness confidence that Ariana had never been seen there. Oh, most suspicious, Lancelot thought. Doge looked to be on the verge of tears. Auntie Muriel, who seemed to be enjoying herself hugely, snapped her fingers for more champagne. Numbly, Harry thought of how the Dursleys had once shut him up, locked him away, kept him out of sight all for the crime of being a wizard. Had Dumbledore's sister suffered for the same fate in reverse, imprisoned for her lack of magic? And had Dumbledore truly left her to her fate while he went off to Hogwarts to prove himself brilliant and talented? Now, if Kendra hadn't died first, Muriel resumed, I'd have said that she, it was she who finished off Ariana. How can you, Muriel, groaned Doge, a mother kill her own daughter? Think of what you're saying. If the mother in question was capable of imprisoning her daughter for years on end, why not? Shrugged Auntie Muriel. But as I say, it doesn't fit. Because Kindred died before Ariana. Of what? Nobody ever seemed sure. Oh, no doubt Ariana murdered her, said Doge with a brave attempt at scorn. Why not? Yes. Ariana might have made a desperate bid for freedom and killed Kendra in the struggle, said Auntie Muriel thoughtfully. Shake your head all you like, Alphias. You were at Ariana's funeral, were you not? Yes, I was, said Doge through the trembling lips. And a more desperately sad occasion I cannot remember. Albus was heartbroken. His heart wasn't the only thing. Didn't Aberforth break Albus's nose halfway through the service? If Doge had looked horrified before this, it was nothing to how he looked now. Muriel might have stabbed him. She cackled loudly and took another swig of champagne, which dribbled down her chin. How do you? My mother was friendly with old Balfilda Bagshot said Auntie Muriel happily. Bethilda described the whole thing to Mother while I was listening at the door. A coffin-side brawl! The way Bethilda told it, Aberforth shouted that it was all Albus's fault that Ariana was dead, and then punched him in the face. According to Bethilda, Albus did not even defend himself. That's odd enough in itself. Albus could have destroyed Aberforth in a duel with both hands tied behind his back. Muriel swigged even more champagne. 
The recitation of these old scandals seemed to either elate her as much as they seemed to elate her as much as they horrified Doge. Harry did not know what to think, what to believe. He wanted the truth, and yet all Doge was sit there all Doge did was sit there and bleat feebly that Ariana had been ill. Harry could hardly believe that Dumbledore would not have intervened if such cruelty was happening inside his own house, and yet there was undoubtedly something odd about the story. <laughs> I'll tell you something else, Muriel said, hiccuping slightly as she lowered her goblet. I think Bethilda has spilled the beans to Rita Skeeter. All those hints in Skeeter's interview about an important source close to the Dumbledores. Goodness knows, it was she was there through all the Oriana business and it would fit. Bethilda would never talk to Rita Skeeter, whispered Doze. Bethilda! Bethilda Bagshot, Harry said. The author of A History of Magic. The name was printed on the front of one of Harry's textbooks, although admittedly not one of the ones he had read most attentively. Yes, said Doge, clutching at Harry's question like a drowning man at a life belt. A most gifted magical historian and an old friend of Alps's. Quite gaga these days, I've heard, said Auntie Muriel cheerfully. If that is so, it is even more dishonorable for Skeeter to have taken advantage of her, said Doge. And no reliance can be placed upon anything but Thilda may have said. Oh, there's always ways of bringing back memories, and I'm sure Rita Skeeter knows them all, said Auntie Muriel. But even if Bethilda's completely cuckoo, I'm sure she'd still have old photographs, maybe even letters. She knew the Dumbledores for years. Well worth a trip to Godric's Hollow, I'd have thought. Harry, who'd been taking a sip of butterbeer, choked. Doge banged him on the back as Harry coughed, looking at Auntie Muriel through streaming eyes. Once he had control of his voice again, he he asked, Bethilda Bagshot lives in Godric's Hollow. Oh, yes, she's been there forever. The Dumbledores moved there after Percival was in prison and she was the neighbor. The the Dumbledores lived in Godric's Hollow. Yes, Barry, that's what I just said, said Auntie Muriel testily. Harry felt drained, empty. Never once in six years had Dumbledore told Harry that they both lived and lost loved ones in Godric's Hollow. Why? Were Lily and James very close to Dumbledore's mother and sister? Had Dumbledore visited their graves, perhaps walked past Lily and James's to do so? And he had never once told Harry, never bothered to say. And why was it so important? Harry could not explain, even to himself. Yet he felt it had been tantamount to a lie not to tell him that they had this place, these experiences in common. He stared ahead of him, barely noticing what was going on around him. And he did not realize that Hermione had peered out of the crowd until she drew up a chair beside him. I simply can't dance anymore, she panted, slipping off one of her shoes and rubbing the sole of her foot. Ron's gone looking to find more butterbeers. It's a bit odd. I've just seen Victor storming away from Luna's father. It looked like they've been arguing. She dropped her voice, staring at him. Harry, are you okay? Harry didn't know where to begin, but it did not matter. At that moment, something large and silver came falling through the canopy over the dance floor. Graceful and gleaming, the lynx landed right in the middle of the astonished dancers. Heads turned, and those near it froze, absurdly, in mid-dance. Then the Patronus's mouth opened wide, and it spoke in loud, deep, slow voice of Kingsley Shacklebolt. The ministry has fallen. Scrimgaur is dead. They are coming. We have to do the next Is that really how it ends? Oh my gosh!
Uh, the next chapter is only ten pages. We need, what's the next chapter called? A Place to Hide. Okay.